Today's scripture is from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hear God's word for us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear God, thanks so much for your word. Thank you that you have spoken into creation, that you are shaping the world by your word. May we now have ears to hear and eyes to see who you long for us to become and so have greater delight in the world that you have made and are remaking. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are a society that is obsessed, I mean absolutely obsessed with self-improvement. Most project that the self-improvement industry by year 2022 with all of its seminars, its books, its podcasts, and so on, will be roughly a $13 billion industry. And it's not hard to figure out why. Every single one of us, if you think about your own life, has something within us, around us, that we would like to see improvement in. So what do we do? We grab a couple books, maybe we attend a couple virtual seminars, listen to a couple podcasts, and we go through the rote pathways to try to bring about some self-improvement. And it goes well for a little bit in some areas of our lives, right? And then a hardship comes and it tests all that hard work that we've been putting in. And more often than not, what we find is that we're not quite as far as we thought we were. And the same can be true in our spiritual lives. A fascinating little side note, um, Barna, the Barna Group teamed up with the American Bible, Bible Society um, to see where daily Bible reading currently is and how it compares to last year for Christians across the United States. And here's what they discovered. It's a bit depressing, so hold on. Um, 2019, there were about 14% of Christians who proclaimed that they were engaged in their Bible on a daily basis. In 2020, the number dropped five percentage points to just 9% of Christians saying that they're involved in their Bibles on a daily basis. Now we have we have less excuses that we're outgoing, doing things, or busy outside of our homes than ever. And yet, as Christians, we're avoiding the scriptures more than ever. And I want you to just think about your own maturity as it's kind of been tested in this pandemic. Do you find yourself being or feeling more or less mature in these most recent months? Well, the longer you experience this frustration, the more you are tempted to ask the question, okay, what exactly am I doing wrong? I want to get better. And the longer that goes on and the more you feel that frustration, then you find yourself tempted to ask the age-old question. And it's this, can I really change? Well, today we are starting a new five-week series in Romans chapter 12, where we're seeking to answer that very question from God's perspective. And here's the hopeful answer that we're going to be unpacking over these next five weeks. Here it is. Can we really change? The gospel says we can change. Now, if you grew up in the church for a while, um, then you probably know you've tried reading scripture and praying, and sometimes even that feels like you're hitting up against a wall. Those are really important disciplines. 
as we're gonna continue to affirm. But the other reality is, if you look across the pages of scripture, is that there are a lot of other resources available to us in our walk with Christ that can be a catalyst to the change and the transformation that God wants to bring about in your life and mine. But maybe one of the biggest misunderstandings when it comes to this whole conversation of change is where one is to start. What is exactly the starting point of change? And that's the topic of today's sermon. Here's where we are to start. We're to start with love. Here's the big idea. If there's one thing I need you to take away from this morning that we're going to see on the pages of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it's this. Only love can change you. Only love can change you. It sounds extraordinarily simple, right? And yet it's absolutely groundbreaking. And today we're going to see why. So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, the letter actually written to the church in Rome, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now let's return to this big statement. Only love can change you. Only love. Now, I want you to think if you've ever cracked open a book around self-improvement or you've been engaged in Christian theories for change for any length of time, you've probably heard a bunch of different theories on how we as people change. Maybe it's right thinking leads to change. Maybe it's a particular decisiveness or making the right decisions or having a really strong will or getting your beliefs correct. And we think, well, that's the pathway to change. And none of that's actually wrong. The only problem is it's a terrible starting point. And if that's all we have in our framework for change, then honestly, it won't be sustainable either. Only love can change you. Look with me now at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And the Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Stop right there. The Apostle Paul, when he's seeking to now encourage or to implore this Christian community to be engaged in God's call for transformation, he lays the foundation at the mercies of God. I love the way the NIV actually translates this verse, specifically that little preposition by. They translate it this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, in light of all the mercies of God, of what he's done in the past, he then makes his appeal for transformation. So just, just for argument's sake, I want you to journey with me. Look with me back at Romans chapter 1 to kind of set us up to get to chapter 12. Chapter 1, verse 7. The Apostle Paul starts in verse 7, and he says this. To all those in Rome who are loved by God. When the Apostle Paul addresses the church in Rome, he's addressing them as the beloved ones, the ones who are loved by God. And he begins to tease out God's active love, his mercies and action on display towards these Christians, what is here detailed as saints, those who are called out, these holy ones made holy by Christ because of God's unending love for us. He begins to detail out God's unending love. So if we look at it this way, in Romans chapter 1, we see God has given the gospel as the power of salvation to all who believe and even revealed his divine character and nature because he loves us. When you get to Romans 2, we see God's justice actually shows no partiality because God loves all of us. In Romans 3, we see God upholds his justice while also making himself the justifier of us sinners, all because God 
loves us. In chapter 4, God makes clear that we cannot earn salvation, but must trust in His promise of life eternal because He loves us. In Romans chapter 5, God made a way of peace between us, His enemies, in and by Himself in Jesus because He loves us. In Romans 6, we see God sets us free from sin's enslavement because He loves us. In Romans 7, God frees us from this body of death because He loves us. In Romans 8, God gives us new life in His Spirit because He loves us. And He communicates over and over in Romans 8 that there's nothing that can separate us from this love. And then in Romans 9 through 11, we see that God has sought about salvation of Jew and Gentile alike. All people! Because He loves us. This is the gospel. God pursuing the world out of his overabundant love. This is the picture we have of God's love. This is the picture we have of the gospel. But far too often, and I grew up in this way, thinking of the gospel specifically as a picture of a transaction, exclusively. Somehow I give God something and he gives me something back and then we go our separate ways. Now that is true. We give God our sin that he has taken upon himself and he gives us his righteousness. But it's not then therefore this transaction about which we now go our separate ways. Instead, that happens when union with Christ is experienced such that we now walk with him in love. That is the rich picture that we're presented of the gospel. You know, often when I put my kids to bed, I tuck them in their covers and I'll often say, often say something like this, looking deep into their eyes. I'll say, you know what? Your daddy loves you. I'm proud of you. And I'm so happy I get to be your daddy. And no matter what you do, no matter where you go, that will never change. And it doesn't matter whether it's Ava, who's six, or Zion, who's on the edge of being two. They both beam with delight and knowing of my unconditional love toward them. That's a more accurate picture of God's love towards us. Not a marketplace transition or transaction, but a relationship of God's overflowing love towards us if we're willing to receive. And so we need, we need a more robust picture of the gospel. We need a more robust picture of just how much God loves and longs to pursue us and to show us that love. And so if we need a more robust picture, it's like this, okay? Imagine you're in a room. It's a giant party and everyone is dead and we're surrounded by our wounds and our brokennesses without any sort of hope. And then God walks in the door and he looks around. And his eyes catch your eyes. And in that moment, you realize he was looking for you all along. And with one tear coming down his eye and a simultaneously a smile across his face, he runs over to you and he picks you up. And he holds you close. And he says, I love you. You feel his love and how he picks you up. And he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And because I love you, I am going to make you whole. That's the gospel. You know, the brilliant author and Christian psychiatrist, um, Kurt Thompson, says that everyone comes into this world looking for someone who's looking for us. When we come to the gospel, we find a God with an overflowing love 
who's doing just that. This kind of love is the starting point to any sort of change. Only love can bring about transformation. But the second reality is that it's not just only love, but only love can change. It is the second part of this important story. This is the beauty of the gospel. And that's not the way that we think, is it? We often think whenever we step into any relationship that I need to change first in order to earn your love or to set myself apart as someone who's worthy of your love. But the hard reality is, is that healthy, long-lasting change never comes about when we're doing it for someone else or to earn someone else's love. That's the beauty and the exclusivity of the gospel and how this message is a part of every other message in the world. It's so unique and distinct in the class of the world religions. And it's why it rings so true to experience and reality. And doesn't it make sense, too? Like, if you're ever going to experience change, you have to be un, unlimited in our vulnerability. Or is the way the Apostle Paul talks about laying our lives as these, like, living sacrifices, our bodies as living sacrifices. How are you going to do that unless you trust someone? And how are you going to trust someone unless they've already communicated unconditional love and exemplified that in space and time and a place of shared memory? Now let's step back to our text. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Thinking about this order of love first, change second. Think about that, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Love is the foundation for any sort of change and then change is the natural outcome. You know, it's fascinating being a parent of three kids because in some senses, they're, they're all the same, the way they respond to certain stimuli. But in other senses, they're very different. And Israel has always captured my imagination in a unique way, in the same way that Ava does in her own way and Zion in his own way. But Israel, when he's quite distraught or frustrated, it seems like no amount of conversation can get him out of that headspace. The only thing that works is when I go up to him and I pick him up and I give him this big hug, nice and gentle. I give him a kiss on his neck and I say, I love you, buddy. I love you, that hasn't changed. Now, what do we need to do? And in that moment, love first, he melts. And he's finally willing to be in a headspace of saying, okay, what else is there? He was so consumed with his frustration. He was so consumed with his brokenness until he felt love. And the same is true for you and for me. We need to feel, receive, accept, and embrace the love that God has for us to feel it. Then we can change. And here's what's the beauty of the gospel. Not only can we change, we will change. This is the promise. In the New Testament, across the pages, we are now a new creation in Christ. We will begin to experience new life. Even this very phrase of be transformed, that particular command, it's in the passive. Commentators describe that as a divine passive, meaning there is an agent bringing the transformation, but it's God himself working in and through you. He's the active initiatory agent. 
Now we'll come to see that there is reciprocity as there is in any good relationship, and it's driven by his grace. But it's God, in his love, doing a deep work within us. The first 11 chapters, we hear over and over in the indicative who we are, who we are, these amazing you know, uh, formulation of our identity in Christ. And then when you get to chapter 12, we see the therefore right there in verse 1 of chapter 12, saying because of all of who you are in Christ, now do these things, the imperatives by the power of the Holy Spirit. To be clear, the first 11 chapters are not the gospel and the chapters 12 following the implications. As many commentators have noted, these are two sides of the same gospel coin that God is bringing salvation in who we are as to how we also live. This is what God's doing. And how is he doing it? By the renewing of our mind. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be unpacking the brilliance of how the gospel does this, but I just want to name a couple quick things. When the Apostle Paul talks about the mind, we cannot allow enlightenment categories to skew biblical truth, meaning often when we come to the mind, we think merely of ideas, as if we need to memorize theology and memorize scripture. Those are both really important, but that's not the sum total of all that the Apostle Paul is talking about when it comes to our minds. In reality, the Apostle Paul is saying the renewing of our mind is a whole new way of seeing everything. One commentator, Douglas Moo, talks about this as a way of saying that almost in your intuitions, you naturally know what, what would bring God delight in every situation. That's more than just knowing theology. That's living in light of who God is in God's world. And, and we see, you know, do not be conformed to this world, the way it thinks, the way it operates with its ideology towards stealing, towards death, towards destruction, but be transformed, allow God's love to totally renew your mind, the way you see the world in his life-giving categories of selfless love and sacrifice. Such that in Romans 1, we have this brilliant detail that God's attributes that are on display in creation, so many choose not to recognize them or see them. That's being conformed to the death and destruction of the world. But when your mind is renewed by the love of God, then finally we start to understand a more popular and more recent song by Phil Wickham titled, Messiah, You're Beautiful. When he says, I know your power in the moonlit night, where planets revolve and the galaxies are bright. I see your brilliance in the light of the stars. It's proclaiming who you are. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. That's the kind of love and that only God can give us. And when we receive it, it actually changes us in our core, not just in what we think, but how we think and how we see everything. When you are in a securely loved relationship, it transforms every engagement thereafter. It brings freedom beyond our comprehension. This kind of love, this kind of hope is what only the gospel provides if we're willing to let God love us. And that particular point right there is what maybe stops more people than anything else. The willingness and ability 
be loved. Think back to this audacious statement. Only love can change you. You? Me? And maybe you think, and this is common for us, right, to go through the categories of other people who from the outside looking in look like they're really great. You know, like Betsy at work is always top notch. Even when it's five o'clock and she should go home, she walks around everyone's desk and says, is there anything else I can help you with? Well, sure, the, the gospel's for people like Betsy. Change is for people like Betsy. Or Tyrone, he's an excellent student, and he seems to always be tutoring others, giving of himself and his time. Surely the gospel has to do, you know, with, with Tyrone, but, but, but me? And what we need to hear is that while this letter written to the church in Rome was written to a specific people in a specific time and a specific place, it is also for God's people throughout time, no matter our space, no matter who we are. See, it's important to note that the Apostle Paul doesn't say that some people need to be transformed. It's also important when you look across the gospel accounts that nowhere do we find that Jesus came to only die for a few, but rather one of the most well-known, simple, but crucial passages in all of Scripture, John 3.16, makes it abundantly clear that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life, a change in trajectory, a change in life. So you need to hear that this hope for change, it's possible for you. It's possible for anyone. And the reality is you may be thinking, but yeah, Gabe, you don't know me. You don't know my story. And hear me, one of the greatest weapons against the gospel that we constantly fall prey to is shame. And this is why we need to be renewed in our mind, even here, and how we see and understand ourselves. And understanding that God has come to bring extraordinary grace to you and to me. And over these next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the ways in which that this love can be prevented from actually piercing our hearts. The ways that we can keep God at arm's length. The ways that we can actually short-circuit change in your life and mine. But today, this is what I want you to hear. God loves you. He is looking for you, and he longs to delight in you and transform you. Not to transform you so that he can love you more. He already has maxed out that quotient. He loves you further than you can even begin to comprehend. But in his transformation, he longs to increase your delight in his love toward you. So here's the real question. Will you let God love you? Will you look at your life in, in, in light of his many mercies throughout history towards you? Will you receive him? Will you see him as going towards you, moving towards you, looking for you in love? Now, granted, there are probably one or two, folk, two kinds of folks that are, that are listening to this right now. Maybe you're hearing this and you've never heard the gospel presented this way. And maybe you thought this was always for someone else. But when you hear about God's love directed towards you, you want that. You want to know Jesus. You want to be loved by this Jesus and what he's come to do. Well, it's extraordinarily simple. It begins with a prayer. And prayer isn't a place where we just name all of our feelings to God. It's also a place to receive his love and to begin a relationship. And if that's you, I want to guide you in how to pray 
a prayer that opens your heart to him to receive his love. And it goes something like this, dear God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for my sins and then rising again on the third day. Thank you for forgiving my sins. I believe in you. And I'm sorry for all the ways I've run from your love. I receive you. And all of who I am is yours. In Jesus' name, amen. It's as simple as that, to begin receiving God's love. Now, for others of you, you may have been walking with Jesus for a while now, but you've landed yourself back into that old transactional form of thinking that even though, yeah, I was, you know, began this walk with Jesus years ago, you've started to slip back into the idea that somehow you have to be good enough to earn more of God's love, or somehow it's, it's based upon performance rather than his unconditional love working in you and then through you. What would it look like for you to take a few minutes today, a little bit later on, get out a piece of paper, and begin to write all the ways in which God's mercy has been shown to you. Before you step into areas of deeper transformation where you feel frustration, remember and think back on your life in view of the many mercies of God. Would you do that today? And I want to invite all of you to please join us over these next weeks as we continue to journey as to what it looks like to change empowered by the gospel empowered by God's unbelievably deep love for you and for me as on display in Jesus. Would you do that? Would you join us? I hope so. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much that you've given us hope of transformation. Thank you that the areas where we experience frustration, pain, and heartache are not determined to be with us forever but by the power of your love and only your love, you have given us an imagination, a hope, and a deep confidence towards change, no matter who we are and what we've done or where we've been. So God, may we rest in your grace. May we hold fast to your mercy. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so now we turn to the Lord's Supper. You know what's so fascinating it's, it's a proven reality that we tend to attach or be willing to receive love most clearly from those who provide for our needs. And here at the Lord's Supper, we see God providing richly for us both physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Through common broken bread, we remember Jesus' body broken for us. And through common juice, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins and the abundance of his mercy. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have elements available and you'd like to partake, now is a perfect time to do that. Gather friends, those that are in your quarantine group, your family, and remember what Christ has done for you out of his great love for you. But before we come, let's remember what's been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, take and eat. <laughs> 